Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of All Together Now, a zombie story, a young adult novel, which goes under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. But every week I tell you about Banneker Bones and the giant robot bees, how it's available as an audiobook, a paperback, and how the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, but I don't want to do that this week. This week I want to tell you about All Together Now, a zombie story by Robert Kent, which is also available. You have to pay a little bit of money to get it from your library. It's worth it. You're going to have a good time. Uh, for more information about my books, more information about me, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, publicists, book people, the world's best people. Go to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, my guest today couldn't be more thrilled. We've got none other than Jody Lynn Anderson with us. Jody, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am thrilled to be talking to you this morning. Um, been looking forward to this. So um, the esteemed audience knows that I will never make my guests sit through me summarizing either your book or your biography. Uh, why would you want to sit there as I fumble through either of those things, knowing that you're right here and could do a much better job of it? Uh, so if you would give a uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Yeah, I, um, I write books for mostly children and young adults. Um, I started uh, in the publishing industry a little over 20 years ago when I was um, a young editor out of college. Um, and I eventually left, I worked at HarperCollins in New York and a, a, a production company called 17th Street Productions after that. And then I left to write full time. Um, and that was a little less than 20 years ago. And um, I've been writing uh, ever since. Um, and about seven years ago, I um, went to uh, get my MFA um, at uh, Bennington College. And so, um, and now I, I just sort of write, I um, do some editing, I do a little bit of teaching. Um, yeah, and just my whole life is, is around, revolves around books. Well, it sounds like living the dream. <laughs> it, it feels good, it's great. It's, it's challenging and rewarding, I love it. Well, I want to break down some of those uh, things you did before we do, I should mention, and we will definitely uh, talk about this more, but your new book just released, uh, 13 Witches, Book Two, The Sea of Always, available now, esteemed audience. Why wait? You could be bringing it up on the probably the very device you're listening to us on uh, and, and get your copy um, available for you now, 13 Witches. So you come out, when, when did you know you wanted to be an author? What's your first memory of, of wanting yeah, you know, I remember, um, you know, those little, I don't know what they're called, but those little, um, the little paper things that kids like to make where they kind of like, you write down like your four, four kind of houses you'd like to live in. It's called MASH. Have you ever, did you ever play that when you were a kid? Is that Mash the one where the origami type thing where you yes. play with your fingers and move it around? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's called, thank you. I've been wondering ever since what's that, what that's called. So bash. Yes, it's MASH or MASH. MASH. I think there's two versions, same game. And um, basically you, the, the math stands for, do you want to live in a mansion, an apartment, a tree house, or a regular house? Uh, um, and you, you, and then you have like your jobs, how many kids you might have, things like that. And this kind of origami thing predicts all those things for you in the game. And um, that is my earliest memory is that whenever my friends and I played that game, I always, author, author, author was always the, the job that I dreamed of. And I was always so excited when that one came up. And, um, you know, I've always written since I was really, really, really little. I, I especially um, was a diary writer. I just didn't know how to process the world without writing in my diary. It was just a major um, coping mechanism. And um, it always felt like I understood things better when I wrote them down. Um, I'm a little bit of a slow processor. And so if I could sit and, and write about something, I could kind of make more sense of it. So I always, I always did that as a kid, um, just to sort of navigate the world, really. Um, and I kept diaries, really, and start, until I started writing full time for my job. And then 
it was just too much to keep up with the diaries and the writing and they overlap so much. So I kind of have let that fall to the wayside um, over the years. But yeah, it's always been my passion for sure. So I, I love this idea you're writing. So you're writing just about your interactions with people and, and trying to kind of analyze them after the fact and figure out what went really well there, what went wrong, that sort of thing with the diary. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it was a way I was, I was a really um, introverted kid, very quiet. I didn't really um, speak up very much. And um, I think it was a way of kind of expressing, expressing myself and also just sort of navigating the, the pressures of that, of feeling um, kind of very shy and um, just feeling like a lot of what was going on inside me was staying very much inside. I didn't really share it with people. And so writing it down was a way of sort of sharing and, and processing. And it was just a huge, um, I, I just don't know how I would have gotten through being a kid without, without writing really. Um, yeah, it was just such a, such a central part of, of how I existed as a kid. Nice thing about um, uh, one of the things about podcasting is because I'm having these conversations with people and they're recorded and I can go back and enjoy them again after the fact, I can hear like, oh, that was a really insightful question I asked. Good for me. And then other times, like, oh, man, you missed it. You should have asked this. You should have asked five other things. Or you see, you hear that. That's the sound of a guest getting a little bit annoyed because you could have been better at that moment. And I like to think that it's, it's, it's uh, improving my, my interactions with people. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it also occurred to me that I'm so glad that when we did it, because uh, we're we're approximately the same age, um, uh, way back when we were doing um, the mash, the, the the paper origami finger trick, um, that it was uh, it was analog. It wasn't all online, so that it would come back to haunt us, you know, 20 years later. Hey, it's been 20 years. Remember when you said you'd live in a mansion? How's that going? Ah, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was so confident about it then. Now I'm in a treehouse. <laughs> I'm not the president. Oh. Ah. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, okay, so then you you're you're um you go to the University of Maryland and you get a BA in British literature, is that right? Mm -hmm. So yes. Um, and then from there, how do you go on to get a, a job as a book editor at HarperCollins? How do you how do you make that transition? Yeah, um, so I, I I I I discovered you know I always read as a kid, and then when I got to college and took a couple of literature classes, it was the first time I'd really really gotten excited about learning in school. Like I just was sort of a very lazy student up until then, and then I discovered something. I was passionate about. And um, so I ended up majoring in, in lit and, um, but I didn't do any writing and that that really kind of came back to the shyness and not wanting to kind of share my work and being very private about writing and never planned to, to share it publicly at all. Um, and it's kind of a key moment that happened for me was in my senior year of college. Um, my boyfriend and I went to visit his aunt and um, his aunt was an editor and um, she we walked into her apartment and she just had these shelves full of books and she was such a cool person and it just I, I was like that is what I want to be that is that is what I want she's so cool and I want to be like that and so um, after I graduated college I um I also really just fell in love with the idea of living in New York City. Um, and so those things, two things came together really well because of course, so many of the major publishing houses are in New York. And so um, I just started kind of casting a wide net, sending out, I tried to write a really um, creative cover letter for my resume that would try to be weird and strange and unique and grab people. Um, and um, yeah, and then I sent out, um, I sent out a resume to just everywhere um, and eventually got 
like two interviews and just really hit it off with uh, an editor at HarperCollins and um, ended up working there. And so that's kind of how I ended up in publishing. Um, and I ended up at first in Harper Business. Um, we published business books and um, kind of autobiographies of um, CEOs and things like that. And eventually I just sort of tiptoed <laughs> over, to, um, over to children's books and ended up working at a, an imprint called Harper Trophy as an editorial assistant there. Um, and it was, it was awesome. Do you have like a clear roadmap in the back of your mind that, okay, first I do, I do the business books, then the children's books, then I become a New York Times bestselling children's author? Or yeah. was it just I like books and let's see where this goes? Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, you know, even when I was in business books, I just, I loved, I loved the people in publishing. I loved the process of publishing. I thought it was really exciting and just so many people in publishing are just are passionate about books. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't really have any sort of plan. Um, I think the children's publishing, the, the children's imprint job just kind of popped up and I thought, wow, that's, um, that really resonates with me. And so I kind of migrated over there, um, which really couldn't have worked out better because I am, children's writing is just so much, so much resonates with what my personality is like. Um, and so kind of as I worked on um, children's books, um, you know, it just felt like home to me. And, um, you know, I still really wasn't writing, uh, you know, to share my writing at all. It's that that still was kind of the farthest thing um, from my mind. But then um, I ended up sort of formed through working in um, that imprint. I formed a connection with some editors over at a production company called 17th Street Productions. Um, and they kind of package ideas for books, television, movies. They have uh, freelance writers who write for them and also, you know, writers who generate um, stories and they kind of work with publishers hand in hand. And so um, I ended up kind of connecting with them and really loving what they were doing because it was so creative. And so I sort of ended up over there. And in that capacity, the editors had to do a lot more writing because sometimes you're kind of creating kind of ideas for book series and things like that. And so that was the first time I sort of ended up needing to share my work. Um, and needing to share my my writing and um, it it just helped me um, get comfortable with that um, not that I'm ever really really comfortable with that's always daunting but um, it helped me gain some confidence there and um, and just you know push me in out of my comfort zone basically into kind of being a more open with the things that I was drawn to and working on. Gotcha. So I love this idea that you're editing all week and then you're writing, but not for any purpose, just because you really enjoy it and still helping you analyze interactions, analyze the world, make sense of, of what's going on around you. Yes, totally. I, I might, I'd say if anything, I, that's the time, that's the time of my life. I wrote most in my, in my journals. Um, and I think partly because um, it was just, you know, I think your early 20s, probably for a lot of people, I don't think this is just a unique experience, but it's just huge in every way. And um, I think more than I needed it more than ever, I needed to be writing more than ever to kind of process everything that was that was going on. So you're with um, HarperCollins, and, and what year are we talking that you, that you start with them? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I graduated college in 97, so it would have been probably 98 to 2001, 2002, something like that. Long time ago. I'm to get a sentence, I know, obviously, some time has passed, and publishing has changed somewhat. 
Uh, if we're talking back in, in 22, everyone's still saying ebook. Who's going to read an ebook on your computer? Get out of here. <laughs> no, there's no need for us to invent our own e reading devices. Maybe some big tech company will do it for us. So that'll definitely work out great. <laughs> anyway. <That's> great. <laughs> so uh, at that point, um, obviously, uh, those of us who have been paying attention to the publishing world have seen some editors uh, resign in rather spectacular fashion, blowing up on social media and letting us all know that uh, they feel that they have not been uh, fairly compensated or treated fairly at the time. We're talking about a different time. When you get there in 2002, are you able to work just the one job as an editor or do you have to work other jobs to, to get the rent? I know, yeah, it was not a high paying job. Um, it was it was tough um, to make ends meet and the, the hours were uh, a lot. Um, I worked a lot of weekends um, and, and evenings after work. Um, I did not have another job, but I did live in some sketchy places <laughs> because that was what I could afford. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel any, I don't, in, for me, I don't wish it had been any different, um, but it was, you know, I always saw it as an apprenticeship and basically it was such a learning experience, especially um, about the mechanics of writing. Um, one of the things we did in, in our office was we shared the, um, the editors, the senior editors, um, the editors that were more senior than me, um, shared their editorial letters that they would write to their authors. So they would print out a copy of the editorial letters and they would all go in a box um, and like up on a, sh up on a shelf that was very central to the office. And then whenever the, the, be the beginning editors, um, wanted to kind of learn the ropes of writing editorial letters and, um, the mechanics of that, you know, uh, the editorial letters would be things like pacing, character development, um, structure, uh, texture and tone, all of those things, editors would be addressing all of those topics in these letters. And so it was a great learning experience to be an editor, but it's also a learning experience um, to be a writer. And again, I, I didn't think of it that way at the time, but it was sort of like going to writing school a little bit because you're just picking up all of these kind of um, details on mechanics and also, you know, too, on the market and, and readership and like thinking about um, looking at uh, stories from the lens of, from the side of the reader and trying to connect with the reader because of course in publishing we're focused on selling the books. And so um, having that, you know, perspective of there's self-expression on this side for the writer and there's also trying to meet the reader and I feel like in those letters, all of that was present and um, it was it was wonderful. So I feel like I got so much out of it um, that, you know, living kind of hard scrabble for a while was um, was was worth it. Um, yeah. I'm assuming that's all building a base of knowledge that you're still using in your daily life today as an author. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it was a very foundational um, experience for my writing. And I think, you know, I think over the years, you know, one of the reasons I went to get my MFA was that I did want to, I think when I first started out writing, I always had that um, marketplace mentality in my mind of what do people want to read and what is publishable. And that that's just kind of where I came from. But it was you know, then I would look at my journals, coming back to my journals, and they were so raw and like full of kind of self-expression and exploration. And so for me, um, a big challenge was sort of bringing, finding the place where those two things met. And, and so I think it, um, the reason I went to get my MFA was that I wanted to be working in an environment where I was not thinking of, at all about, will this ever get published? It was all completely about finding my voice and, and not, and kind of dropping all the other, um, 
all the other considerations of will this ever go anywhere um and so and it was i mean hugely helpful for me to just try to find what is it that i what is it that i love what is it that i really really want to be writing about um how do i capture the the vulnerability of my journals in like what i'm writing um and so i know that's that's a long answer to your question but um but yeah it it, it that going back to editing I feel so lucky to have had that as a piece of my writing life because I know a lot of writers don't don't get to have that um, that piece of kind of an experience um, in the publishing world and it's just it's been invaluable to me for sure. Well, for the record, I love long answers because then you're going to reveal insights. I'm I just don't know enough to ask you the right questions to get to. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> I love your questions; they're great. Uh, when you're well you so you go to 17th street and that gets you right working a little bit more creatively when you sit down and come up with the series how much of that creation are you a part of so you basically i mean it would vary but um you would basically kind of the way we worked it was we would kind of come up with this sort of proposal and it would be like here's um here's the basic gist of the story or here's kind of the pitch, you know, if you were going to tell somebody about it in the elevator, the elevator pitch. Um, and then here's kind of maybe some major characters that kind of work through the series. Um, we'd kind of like use some visuals to try to get, you know, it would be a, it would be a document, um, nothing, <laughs> nothing high tech or fancy. And we just try to capture sort of a tone. Um, maybe of like a basic outline of the plot to some extent, not necessarily. And then um, we would sort of, we would either be sort of working with a freelance writer in tandem already, or we would sort of, you know, talk to the publishers about this is the, the kind of idea, what do you think? And then sort of together we would, we would um, look for good, you know, good fits for, for freelance writers. And it, that, that model really changed. I think, um, you know, so 17th Street Productions had uh, really made their mark with um, the Sweet Valley Twins series back in like the eighties. Um, and so when I came in the late nineties, that, that model was really shifting because people, I think the young adult market particularly was looking for a lot more sophistication and voice and a lot more uniqueness and a lot more quirk. And so I think that's shifted a lot now. Um, I think that those projects are a lot more author driven than probably editor driven is my guess, although I've been out of that business a long time, so I'm not sure. But um, we were just just sort of on the cusp where it was sort of it was sort of changing. And, um, and I think probably they kind of my guess is they reach out more to authors now to kind of generate and then and then the editors kind of work with them creatively. That makes sense. As you're talking, I'm wondering, well, if you've already got the plot, the characters, and the tone, what do you need an author for? Just <laughs> sit down and hammer that thing out. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I used to think that, and then I started writing full-time, and I was like, wait a second, like, that is, this is so hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm being a little bit glib, but uh, okay. I, it sounds like a, like a lot. Um, and it would be, uh, and this might just be my own personal um, uh, uh, hang up, but it would be difficult, I would think, as an author to come in and like, wait, I have to do this tone. I can't have my own character. I can't change this. How much? Give me some freedom. I mean, let me do one thing. Even if I'm working with existing IP, if you let me write a Batman story, wonderful. All my life, I wanted to write a Batman story. First thing I'm going to do, Banneker Bones, Batman crossover. Let me bring in some character that's not a part of this universe and blow, blow this up a little bit. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, I think it's it's a tough, it can be a really strange fit when the circumstances are not right, for sure. That coming up with that stuff, when when does it finally when do you finally get the confidence, one, to share your work with somebody else? Uh, and then two, to write something that's not just a journal to help you process the world, but actual fiction. 
So, yeah, I, um, you know, I think it was through having some success with some of those projects that I was working on as an editor um, and doing a lot of kind of brainstorming for and, you know, working sort of in partnership with the writers. I think that that seeing those things kind of fr the fruit that came of those things and those projects um, just started to kind of, that was, that was really the first time that, 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 that I started to seriously entertain the idea of um, writing um, for myself. And so I started talking to them. I, I also just for other reasons was planning to um, leave New York. And um, I started talking to them about, um, you know, whether I, I might leave and kind of write something for this production company. And so I did. Um, I wrote under a pseudonym, a first, a group of four books. Um, I don't know if I'm going to say the name of the books or not. They're pretty bad. Um, and I remember my first review was like, mediocre characters cannot save, or cannot save the like plotting plot, something just terrible, terrible, terrible review. Um, and I definitely, you know, I, so I was writing those books, I was writing my first books when I was, um, I moved to Atlanta, and I was working, I worked as a temp um, at an industrial gases corporation, and I wrote those books on the side, and um, I couldn't, like, I couldn't, <laughs> I used to um, only cook, I, <laughs> this is a pitiful story, but I used to cook, like, all my dinner like I would cook pasta every night in my coffee pot because I couldn't afford the gas for my stove. Um, and I was pretty bad at writing, but I just, I just still loved it. And so I just kind of, I remember at one point saying to my best friend, um, who's sort of in the industry, he works in movies, but um, I was saying, I'm just, yeah, I think I'm not cut out for this. I'm going to just sort of pack it in. And he was sort of the one who was like, you just have to keep going, keep going. Um, and so I did. Um, and then the next kind of couple of books that I wrote, um, like I really felt like I leveled up just by working, working, working on my mechanics. Um, and so I wrote the first of a, a trilogy called Maybird and the Ever After. And then I wrote... Um, a book called Peaches and um and that was sort of the first time I felt like I was getting somewhere with my writing. Very uh very jealous that you get to bury your first works under a pseudonym <laughs> and I don't know are you able to separate yourself when that bad review comes but well it's it's their bad review not necessarily mine how do you how do you get up off the floor and and and, and write something new after that I wish I wish I could separate that from myself but no I'm very much that person and um I don't know I feel like it's like you have to kind of get a bunch of stuff out like for me I think what was really um maybe not ideal about those early books was that I was sort of it was all angst I was just like let me get all this angst 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 and I, I I'm pro angst like I I I I love to write about sadness and darkness and all of the things that are painful. But I think at that point, I didn't yet, hadn't yet developed the idea that I also need to contrast that in my stories with the light and the humor and the, the, um, the glittering things that are also true. And, and so I think that I don't know. I think that we're, when we're often first writing, we have so much that's built up inside. And I remember just wanting to sort of get it all, get it all down. And I thought that was all there was that I was ever going to write about. Um, but I think, you know, that evolved and um, yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, we all, we all, most of us, I would hope like write bad, bad early drafts of things, you know, I, I know most of my writer friends and I, we all struggle with that, um, but hopefully we just keep working and, and keep improving what we're, what we're doing. I always remember that in, if there's no first draft, then you don't have anything to revise or rewrite. There's nothing to improve. 
So it's okay that it's going to be bad. Nobody's going to see it except trusted people. If, if them, I don't, I don't do that to my friends uh, or my critique partners anymore. I, you're not going to get a first draft. Let me get to three or four and then you can take a look at it. Let me at least correct the spelling. <laughs> totally. Totally. Same. Then they can say to me, Rob, this is terrible, but it is spelled correctly all the way through. I really appreciate that. <laughs> and the nice grammar. That was that was great. <laughs> I really admired your spelling. <laughs> this was written in English, which I speak that language. So it was really easy to, to for me to read. I appreciate that part of it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Maybird and the Ever After comes out uh, 2005, and I noticed that it uh, changed title. It was it was Maybird and the Ever After, and then it became the Ever After once it became a trilogy. So, did you know going in this was going to be a trilogy, or was that decided once the first one's out? I did. I did think of it as a trilogy. Um, I don't know why I thought of it as a trilogy. I just, I just, that's just how it popped into my head. Um, and it was really kind of, it's interesting because it's about ghosts and um, I kind of thought I was gonna get ghosts out of my system by writing, <laughs> writing those books. And it turns out that ghosts is my lifelong passion. And so I, I, that was sort of, it was sort of accidental, you know, I was living, so like I said, I was living in Georgia and I happened to live in this um, little apartment that overlooked a, a old cemetery and, um, like a historic cemetery and also I lived at my apartment um basically there would all be all these ghost tours in my neighborhood and I I sort of picked this up pretty slowly like I would see these groups walking around up and down my street and pointing to my house and um yeah it turned out so my neighborhood was supposedly quite haunted and these ghost tours would would come around and I would see them pointing to my my window and um and then I'd get letters in my mailbox that would be from paranormal investigators asking if they could come investigate my house and I sadly embarrassingly never like asked them to do that in hindsight I think why why wouldn't I why wouldn't I pursue that um that's a whole novel right there in that experience <laughs> I, I know but it was su it was such a good influence and I guess I'm I'm, I don't even know chicken or the egg, whether I was already writing about ghosts when I moved into the apartment, but it, it of course was hugely influential. And I wrote most of that trilogy in that apartment. And, um, and I even had, you know, people tell me that my apartment was haunted, just neighbors. And, um, you know, I did actually feel that there was a cat always at my apartment, even though no cat lived there. That's kind of the only spooky experience I had. But every time I came home, I felt like there was a cat waiting for me at the top of the stairs um so so yeah I just I, I I wrote that trilogy and um tried to kind of stray away from ghosts after that and I I just can't I can't quit ghosts they're just a big part of my big part of my world <laughs> that's like a best case scenario for a haunting if it's just a cat it's fine I know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally I'm okay with a cat ghost anything more than that Maybe not. Um, well, now I have to ask. Um, a Steve audience knows that that I ask everybody sooner or later. But have you have you seen a ghost? I have not seen a ghost. Do you always ask people that? I do. I ask ghost or flying saucer. I wish I did. I don't. I, you know, I have a lot of people I'm connected to who have a lot of. Uh, that's the cliche, right? Is that you always have someone you know who's seen ghosts. And I have a lot of people I trust in my life who um, have had various experiences. Um, and I wish I could have one, but I have not yet. Maybe one day. I'm still hoping. Fingers crossed. Well, I, uh, I, I know people who are close to me who've, who've had those experiences, but then hosting this show and asking everybody if they've seen a ghost or, or another, because you know, I'm talking to the world's best people. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to authors, the, the salt of the earth. Uh, and I've talked to four or five people now on this program who recorded their episode from a haunted house and were telling me where the ghost was in the background behind them. <laughs> that is so cool. Wow. Oh, I want to check those ones out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that they're almost like a like a paranormal activity movie where you're listening to gain insight about knowledge, but keep an eye on the background, see if you see anything moving oh, around. Oh, awesome. 
totally check that out. So if you have not seen a ghost, what do you think it is that, uh, that attracts you to ghost and keeps you coming back all the way up now to the, the present series, 13 Witches? Yeah, um, a couple of things. I, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go, and I talk about this at, when I do school visits, but when, when I was a kid, um, we used to go every year to sing Christmas carols at this old um, mansion, or yeah, mansion. I grew up in Ringwood, New Jersey, and it was called Ringwood Manor. And um, we would stand outside, a big group, group of us, and sing carols. And this whole build, huge building was ablaze, except for the third floor. It was completely dark. And um, we talked a lot about, you know, the rumor was that they just left that floor for the ghosts. And there are a lot of stories um, revolving around that manor. Um, that, you know, still kind of exists today, because uh, I check up on it every now and then. Um, and I just, I just felt that, I felt like it was scary and spooky, and I felt like it was also cozy in, in this opposite way. I felt, I didn't feel scared of the ghosts being malevolent. I felt like, I felt there was something comforting that I need I, I was very curious about um, and and you know so years later when I was a teenager my mom worked in a library she was a librarian and um, I just would go and wait for her a lot at the library and so I found a book and I, I've tried to find out the name of it since then and I, I, I can't but um, it was about like what what how we create ghosts in, in our, in different cultures and, um, what ghosts sort of connect to about what we believe and how, how the ghosts of different cultures kind of reflect back on those cultures. And, um, and that really fascinated me, even as a, you know, even as a, as a teenager, when I, I wasn't so into that kind of like esoteric kind of, I, I wasn't so into that kind of thinking at that time, but, um, it kind of stuck with me. And so I think I've always had this like curiosity in the back of my mind is what is it that is so, what is it that's comforting about ghosts and cozy about ghosts, even though they're scary and, and spooky. And, um, and so I think a little bit, I'm always trying to write about that. Um, I think part of it is with the Maybird trilogy, um, I was really worried. There were a lot of, there were some people in my life who were quite sick at that time. And I was really worried about them passing away. And so it was a way to just kind of the comfort of thinking of um, spirits going on to this kind of goofy world where ghosts have retirement communities and amusement parks and, um, you know, everyday concerns. That was very, um, that was very comforting to me. Um, and, and it still is. And I think, you know, I know there's this, I don't know, are you familiar with this fairy story? There's a book about fairy stories. It's called fairy stories. Do you, do you, and it's, it's like written by an old author and, and he, I think it's a man talks about why fairy stories are so important to us. And I know there's a million reasons why, but he talks about that feeling of the more like, um, that there's more and um, that there's magic. You know, I think for me, ghosts mean real magic. And um, and so I'm always like seeking them. And it's not even that I necessarily am 100% convinced that ghosts are out there, but I love the fact that we believe they're out there and um, you know, also like, you know, I talk about this in my school visits as well, but uh, ghosts, even though we've never proven ghosts exist, like we, everybody, we share them with words. Ghosts are this very tangible piece of the world that do not exist in any other forum that we can prove but words. And it's just really cool to think about how words can build ghosts <laughs> for centuries. I think that's just the power of words, the power of stories 
that, you know, we're still all like, we're walking around looking for, you know, like looking around the corner, seeing there's a ghost. And so much of that is, it comes from words, you know, I think that's really, really cool, especially as, as, you know, a writer to think about what words have placed in the world. Well, I mean, it's only ever uh, metaphorically true. The idea of ghosts still being with us, them carrying on those who came before us, their, their time on this earth having meant something and impacting our present is inherently optimistic. I think it was a Stanley Kubrick who said uh, the horror genre is inherently optimistic because for all the scares, there is the idea that we go on, there is something more beyond this. Do you find that to be comforting, this idea that, uh, you know, no hurry, but once we shuffle off this mortal coil, that's not it, there'll be more. Yeah, definitely. Like any of those stories where, you know, people are, I just watched Upload from, I think Amazon did a, a show, Upload, that's about uh, being, you know, having our, our consciousnesses uploaded into like resorts <laughs> um, when we pass away. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I will watch any or read any of those kinds of stories because it is comforting. And at the same time, I do, um, you know, I do, I do believe so much that magic and spirit and, you know, nature, they're all, they're all so entwined and like, there's so much more than we know and so much more that we can't see. And, and, and I think that's why, you know, I feel, you know, magic is to write about magic is true because of that. And, um, yeah, it's hopeful. It feels hopeful. I love that. I love that quote. That's the only Cooper quote. Cool. Also, I've got a, a meme I shared on social media a while back I'm a little bit obsessed with because I, th I think it just calls me out uh, as it's somebody that's it's a, it's a new ghost. And so you see the sheet floating. says, oh, nuts, I died. And then he realizes that there's a ghost game. Was, oh, my Game Boy died too. And then the next panel is just him sitting as a ghost playing his Game Boy in the afterlife. But yes. <laughs> that, is, that, that sounds like me. Let me take the books. Let me take my Nintendo. <laughs> Keep up same old, same old. <laughs> so be like, Rob, don't you want to go see the Pearly Gates or whatever it is? It's, no, no, this is good. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Very I, hope, I hope it's possible to order a haunted pizza. That would be nice in about an hour. <laughs> Have you, have you ever seen that movie Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks? And oh, Meryl yes, classic. <laughs> Speaking of ordering unlimited food. Kevin. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful film. So, um, okay, well, then flash forward then. That brings us to uh, 13 Witches. Um, and the... The second book has just come out, but no worries, esteemed audience. If you if you haven't read book one, that one's The, the Memory Thief is still available. Uh, so true to my promise at the start of this, um, I will not make you sit through me fumbling over a description of your book. What does esteemed audience need to know about 13 Witches? Yeah, 13 Witches is a trilogy. Um, it's about a girl, Rosie, who... Um, discovers that her mom, who's always been a little bit kind of emotionally absent, um, she discovers that she actually has been um, cursed by uh, the memory thief who's, who's taken, who's a, one of the 13 witches in the, in the universe. And she's taken her, um, the curse has taken her mother's memories and therefore her, her mother's ability to really be there for her and, and, um, and be loving with her. And the way she discovers this is um, she is a writer and uh, Rosie is a writer and um, her best friend Germ, they're in middle school and uh, Germ thinks that Germ has suddenly kind of come upon this social life and popularity and Germ has begun to feel that um, they need to kind of leave childish things behind, including uh, these these happy ending stories that Rosie, Rosie writes. She, she's, Germ's very kind. She, she says this gently, um, but, but it's because of Germ's nudging that Rosie goes out and burns her stories that she writes one night because she thinks she needs to kind of move on from fairy tales. And um, when she burns her stories, uh, it kind of triggers 
her to be able to see uh, things that she's never seen that surround her. Um, there are ghosts in her house. Um, there's uh, one particular ghost named Eb, who's a boy about her age who died there year, many years before. Um, and there's um, a ladder that's hanging from the moon. There's ships, ghost ships out on the, um, the horizon of the, she lives on the ocean, near the ocean. Um, and so once she finds out about this world, she finds out soon about the curse and the witches. And uh, she kind of sets out to try to destroy this witch who has stolen her mother's memories in order to get her, her mother's memories back. And meanwhile, she's also, there's a lot of navigating middle school and, um, and her friendship with Germ as Germ kind of changes. So who um, was the ideal reader for the story? Um, you mean kind of age-wise or? Um, any kind of wise. Any kind of wise. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, on Earth and say this, you need to read yeah. this right now. Who are you going to? I mean, I think... Um, I, oh, I often write for people who are shy and, and introverted and people feel who feel a little different. Um, and uh, people who love the way books rescue them, because that's a, a big part of the story, um, is just that um, I think for a lot of us, books have saved us more than once and so um it's it's really for people who you know that that kind of resonates with which i think is probably a lot a lot of people feel that way about books um yeah and i mean age range you know probably kind of depends on what you know maybe 10 and and older and i i, I tend to write books that have a lot of kind of humor that can kind of translate to adults as well as kids. I try to kind of have that, bridge that in my writing. So, um, yeah. Thinking of the parents or the teachers who are gonna be reading this aloud to, to younger people. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I always write, I always try to write what I would like to read as an adult, you know? Um, as well as what a kid would like to read. I think I've always trying to think of that, you know, keep those things tightly together. Um, I think I'm always writing like completely with, as with my own sense of humor, you know, <laughs> which is kind of um, childish and adult, uh, childlike and adult at the same time, I would say. So I think that's just what the, the natural place where, where I fall with my writing and then is the sea of always just a middle book and we're looking forward to a third and possibly fourth that's right yeah so in the second book um that just came out um rosie and germ despite the kind of complications in their in their their friendship um are they're still tightly loyal to each other and they are setting off on a time traveling whale um through the ocean to um to chase down the other uh, witches who are left uh, and then there there will be a third book or there will be yes there will be a third book um i just finished the first draft of that um and that has kind of an outer space <laughs> outer space element rosie <laughs> rosie gets around um and you know i love the first book is kind of more of a mystery and the second book is more of kind of an adventure and the third book I'd say is a little more kind of sci-fi feeling and I think I, I that was something I sort of set out to do initially because I always had the end in mind and the end um I always wanted it to play a lot with uh perspective and being able to shrink and travel great distances and all of these sort of um sci-fi elements I love um I don't know if you know Grant Naylor Red Dwarf but I've loved that book forever I, I know it's a show as well um and uh 
those things kind of seem, they fit, they all fit really well together in my mind for this particular trilogy. They all just seem to kind of naturally, naturally fit for the story. Congratulations on finishing your first draft. That's huge. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's um, terrifying as always. And, um, but yeah, very, like, I always just, the night after I turn in something, I just lay awake and think of all the things I did wrong uh, and just terrified about what the author, what my editor is going to say. But, um, but it's also a good feeling. I get to, you know, sleep in every once in a while. So it's good. Sure. <laughs> There's that until you get the next idea. Uh, do you feel like uh, at this point you're, you haven't said goodbye because you've still got to do revisions and rewrites and then you'll have to go out and talk about it and promote it and everything? Mm -hmm. Do you foresee a point where you're going to say goodbye to Rosie in this world permanently, or is this just a little bit of a conclusion and then maybe we come back and we, we explore a little more later? No, you know, I don't, I think this is, this is it. I feel pretty certain. Um, you know, it's funny because Maybird, that trilogy I wrote 20 years ago, and I still, every once in a while, think, okay, we're going to go back. Like, I'm going to go back and visit Maybird. I, I, I feel like there may still be one more story there, but um, but no, at 13 Witches, I think. Well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. I did. I do have some thoughts for like a little spinoff thing, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, even if you never write Maybird, Maybird for just having having the your characters in your mind and knowing that there are possibilities or imagining what might be happening to them, that's its own little reward. It's so true. I know, and it's funny because um, you know the first book event I ever did for Maybird, um, which was you know I was just so excited to get to do a book event, and it was you know this was a long time ago, and this little girl came up to me and asked about one of the characters, Somber Kitty, who's Maybird's cat, um, who's a big character in the story. And she was asking me all these questions about Somber Kitty's life after the stories, as if Somber Kitty was still like living. And I just, just that was the most, one of the most satisfying moments I've ever had as a writer, because I loved that Somber Kitty lived on for her. And I mean, they, de yeah, they definitely do for me. I wonder about them a lot as if they're real people that I'm thinking, how are they doing? It's, that's definitely, that's definitely there. And that is, it is like a, a privilege, you know, to get, have that, to live with that. Yeah, just, uh, I, I shouldn't talk much about it because it's very early on, but I've started a draft for a story because I wrote a series that I thought, well, the way this ends, there's no way there could ever be a sequel. And then years later, like, that feels like a challenge. I bet there could be, though. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I just don't like the thought of never, never, ever, ever. I think, I think maybe there could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, you feel those attachments as well? Like, do your characters live on in your oh, mind? Yeah. 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 Even if, uh, in most cases, if I really feel strongly, I'll, I'll just sit down and write. Like, there will be another Banneker Bones probably eventually. Uh, there, there's no rush because I've just finished the, the trilogy and it's good for a moment. But at some point, I, I think about him frequently. You know, I, I hear I hear the, the call of whatever that is, that whatever the muse is that pulls you in like, hey, this direction. Not, yeah. not today, but maybe maybe a year from now, maybe a couple of years from now, maybe a decade from now, you'll be back. Yeah, yeah. That's not true. It's still nice just to have that feeling that I could go back. Right. Totally. It's, it's like having a friend who like lives overseas or something like, you don't know if you'll get to see them again, but you're always going to live with that hope, you know, that you get to be together again at some point. Are you able to sit down and like pick up uh, Maybird and reread it and without knowing that you can't change anything and just enjoy it as a book? Um, you know, I have not I think for the first probably 10 years after a book, that's like a hard no, because um, I just see the flaws, um, which I, I'm sure is a pretty common experience. But um, I would say now I could, I think this many years later, for some reason, it's harder for me to listen to the audio, audio books. For some reason, it's more embarrassing to me, <laughs> um, maybe because they're coming more to life or something. Um, 
I'd say if enough time passes, then I can go back. But yeah, it's, it's really hard for the first few years. Um, and it's, it's funny because I, I don't know if you have this experience, but like you work so hard, so hard on a book and then it comes and you have your moment of like, yes, it came in the mail and it's printed and it's, this is so exciting. And then the next day I'm kind of like, okay, I'm going I'm to just put it up there. And like, there's something uncomfortable about thinking about it too much as like being a real book. Maybe it's partly that we have to move on, you know, to the next, to the next thing. I do have the problem when I started a new book somewhere around chapter four or five when I'm, I'm into it, but I'm not that far in, I'll find myself opening up the last book that I finished and rereading parts of it because it's done. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> oh my gosh, you totally, <laughs> that is actually so true. I, I, until you said it, I didn't realize I did that. I totally do that too. Cause you're like, oh, this is so nice. Like it's, these paragraphs are actually edited. It's yeah. <laughs> that is so funny. That is How so am funny. I going to resolve this story problem? Nailed it. It's done. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. And I'm often like, who wrote this? It's me. So you've done your first draft. How long did draft uh, one of the third book take? Draft one of the third book. Um, yeah, that went really, really quickly. I actually, the, so the, the first, so book one took me forever. Um, I, it was due, I, it, it was due, and I, I mean, it went on another two years after it was due because I just couldn't, there was, more than any other book I've worked on, I think it was, I was really blocked on, on book one. Um, and I think that's because I was trying to write about something really um, abstract, which was how Rosie could use stories to fight witches. Um, I knew that I wanted to, that was one of the kind of motivating forces of writing the book in the first place was that, um, I, you know, I have this habit of I when I read a, a news story that really bums me out, um, I often just kind of automatically lie in bed and try to rewrite the story, like the re rewrite the real story into kind of a happy ending. I, I do that almost like um, a reflex. And um, it, it helps to soothe me and, and kind of put my mind at ease a little bit so I can sleep, but also, um, but also when I was kind of coming up with this idea for 13 Witches, I just also started thinking about how I, I do have this kind of, as we were, you know, talking about magic earlier, I just do have some kind of belief I can't explain that even when we're only telling stories to ourselves, they change something in the world. I just, I just have that faith. And so um, I wanted to write about that. And so I really struggled with how to write like a, a, a mystery and sort of an adventure story that revolves on the idea of a story fighting dark things and, and, and um, evil things, not dark things, evil things. And um, so uh, eventually I ended up just kind of um, Googling, like Googling, 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 like how do I do this? How do I do this? Looking at all these different writers talking about how they're working with weapons and their stories. And finally, I just kind of gathered enough information of when you're working with a weapon in a story, it should sort of reflect its, um, its carrier, its owner, and it should um, have weaknesses as well as strengths. And so I came up with this idea that Rosie, through writing a story about a, a bluebird and this, this story that's kind of meaningful for her about how this, this bluebird lives in a world of kind of scary things and sometimes bad, bad things happen to good bluebirds. Um, she writes this story and kind of there, there's this, she kind of wraps it around this flashlight that she has, it's her favorite flashlight. And um, through kind of these magical forces that are kind of surrounding her, 
this bluebird ends up being the thing that comes out of the flashlight. And so it's her story has created this physical element that helps her kind of find witches, fight witches. And over time, it turns out that this bluebird can transform as far as Rosie's kind of imagination can go. And so it was sort of taking something abstract and making it concrete. That was like my big hurdle in these stories. Um, but that, when I finally reached that, <laughs> that felt truthful to me. And so um, then it sort of took off, but it was, it was awful. And I was weeping, <laughs> I was crying and my, my husband works at home with me. Yeah, not with me, he works his own job at home. And I would just go to his office crying just about how this story was never gonna happen. Um, and all I wanna do is write about how much I love books. And, um, but eventually, you know, eventually it came together. And the second book and, you know, and the third book have come so much easier. So I know, again, that's a long, long answer, but. No, it's a fantastic answer. So do, I know you're more of a pantser than a plotter, right? So do you know you're gonna have a trilogy when you start? For this book, I didn't. For this book, the for the 13 Witches, I thought it was gonna be two books. Um, and then when I was kind of, I think I was, had finished the first book and I realized it needed to be three. Um, it's almost like I just picture what I would like to hold in my hands at the end. Um, you know, I have this, something we used to do at the production company I worked at was, um, I think our boss used to put like, he would just take construction paper and kind of wrap it around a book so that it was like a blank. I actually have here, hold on, I'll grab it. I'll kind of take a book and wrap construction paper over it so that it's kind of blank <laughs> like this. And um, and I just keep it somewhere so that I can just think of it as a finished, a finished book. And it helps me think, well, what is the book that I would like to hold in my hands? Like, and what, which really is helping me try to think what is the type of, what is the book that a reader would want to hold in their hands? Like, I remember that feeling as a kid, especially, or I mean, even now as an adult, like certain books, you just love to hold them, you know? And, um, and so I think when I'm trying to decide about like trilogy or single book, I, I, a lot of times it, it is kind of like a little bit of the physical idea of like, what do I want to be holding at the end of this? So then if you, once you've got book one published, then do you take two other books, wrap them in construction paper and put them next to it so it's like its own little box set for one day? Oh, that bit, that's a really good idea. No, I've never done that. Okay. Um, yeah, I should. Um, I had a burning question for you, and it's it's gone right out of my head. And I'm looking at our time, and I see it's all flown away from us. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. That happens when you're talking about writing, right? It's just could go on forever. It's so fun to talk about. Especially when you're talking to another writer who, because I talked to, you know, you talk to normals, uh, normal <laughs> people in the world, and they don't know what you're talking about. You have a nebulous idea. You wrapped a book in construction paper. Why would you? And I know exactly what you mean. Like, yes, I have done that too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. I know. It's funny. You're, we pick up We pick up what we're throwing down to each other. It's like, um, I know sometimes when I, you feel so much passion about the stories you're working on and then somebody, somebody who's not a writer asks you about it and you just feel like you're like spitting in the wind. Basically, like you just, it's, it's so hard to communicate about it and the process, I think, um, sometimes. Well, you start talking about, I can hear my characters' voices in my head. They talk to me and I know what they would say. And then people look at you like, you mean like a demon? No, not <laughs> like a demon. <laughs> you mean like you're possessed? <laughs> totally. Kind of, but not like you think. <laughs> Let me talk to another writer. They'll understand. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, not, not yeah. possessed because I do feel compelled to put that all down on the page, but not my head's yeah. not spinning around. It's <laughs> not, not yet, not yet. <laughs> well, um, thank you uh, again, Jody Lynn Anderson, for for making the the time today and for being such a, a tremendous guest. I could go on and, and talk your head off all day, but I won't. Uh, instead, I will invite you to come back because I know you're going to write more books uh, for today. 
Uh, my final question is usually some variation of if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been most helpful to you uh, and give yourself some advice that would have helped you then and might help all the authors who are uh, watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Yeah, you know, I feel like Margot Fontaine, the dancer, always has the such good quotes on, on this kind of stuff. Um, and um, she, I'm going to horribly mangle and paraphrase, but she talks about how like writing, creating something beautiful is about finding a way to be yourself in what you're writing or what, what you're working on for her dance. But um, I think that, that that finding a way to be yourself and be comfortable with the things that you're passionate about and to follow the things that you're passionate about in your writing, even if you're like, oh, I really don't wanna be the person who always writes books about ghosts, but that's what's in my heart all the time. And so I, I think that um, that is something I wish I could have told myself a little earlier. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to be ourselves, I think. I mean, in life and um, and it's the same in writing. And um, but so it's like easier said than done. But the closer we can get to it, I think um, the better better our writing will be. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Mm -hmm. So I have a website, jodylynnanderson.com. I um, don't I do a lot of social media because I'm very, very bad at it. Um, but um, you can visit me on my website. I try to, you know, I have a contact thing on there. I try to um, get back to people as often as I can um, when they write in. And um, I am hoping to establish some kind of blog soon. Um, we'll see, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not great at social media and I am deeply apologetic for that, but I'm trying, I'm trying. I think you're better off. You're, you're probably mentally much healthier if you're <laughs> stepping away from. So I just read it anymore. I don't even try to put much out there. Just reading it uh, makes me feel a little bit worse about the world. After I have to, I have to time and say, okay, that's enough. Let's put that away. Yep, 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 yep. I, I, that was that's part of why I've pulled away a little bit. But the other half is I, I never generated any interesting stuff on social media anyway. But yes, I, I I'm with you 100. percent but when you start your blog, if people are uh, heading to jodylynnanderson.com, they're going to find it. Yes, that's where I would, that's where I'll park it. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of stuff about books and things like that on there. Esteemed audience, uh, as always, for interviews with authors, editors, book people, the world's best people, go to middlegradenetcha.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Rob.